everybody good morning welcome to the true crime squad this is katie weaver here with a special broadcast uh as promised it is tuesday morning at 9 a.m and we're just getting ready for the uh lori vallow foray into court this morning so if you hadn't already heard we did change things up a little bit we had intended at one point to attend this court uh hearing live because Initially, it looked like Chad and Lori would be in the same courtroom for the first time. So we had decided to attend. However, uh, that changed because on Friday, the prosecution uh, made an agreement with Chad's camp about the DNA. And that's the thing they were coming to uh, hash out was uh, still working on that consumptive DNA and who's going to test it and who's going to be present. and. Um, Mr. Pryor has now hired a DNA expert, a professor from uh, Boise State University, and they made an agreement on how they're going to do it and where and whatnot, and so they didn't need to come to court. So the other thing that, uh, you know, is going on in court today is Lori uh, will be in court, and live in court, which uh, we haven't seen very much of in the last couple of years. So, uh, and they're coming to court because Mr. Archibald, her attorney, feels like some of the language in her arrest warrant, uh, in her charges that were an indictment from the grand jury are unclear and perhaps need to be separated into individual charges. So, that's why we're here. That's what's happening. So we're currently just waiting for court to start. We are going to be piggybacking on to East Idaho News. Oh, looks like we're getting going. So let me get uh, let me get my screen shared here. Okay. So not entirely going, but it's a start. <laughs> as soon as uh, as soon as they start in earnest, I will take myself off the screen and we'll just uh, experience this together. So I'm not sure if I can take the screen off. Maybe I can't for the chat. Yeah, I guess not. I was hoping to take it off completely. I guess I can't do that. Okay. Well. I guess we'll have to stick with that. Okay, well, whatever. Here we are. <laughs> so we'll see. You know, there was uh, talk that Lori had, there we go. There was talk that Lori had made uh, friends. Good morning, Stella. There was talk that Lori had been making some friends at the jail uh, and that they were doing each other's hair and hanging out a little bit, exercising together, things like that. So, uh, you know, you can probably expect to see her at least a little bit gussied up because she never likes to come into court looking, uh, you know, 
like a troll. So <laughs> I would imagine we'll see some of that uh, signature Lori hair and lipstick this morning, but we'll see. Good morning, guys. So we're just waiting for the live stream to start. Uh, of course, court is taking place in Fremont, Idaho, Fremont County, Idaho, at the Fremont County Courthouse, which uh, much earlier in this case, uh, like when Chad was first arrested, so two years ago now, we did go up to the Fremont County Courthouse and do some uh, streaming there. So not in the courtroom, of course, but uh, just kind of showing you guys what the courthouse, what the jail looks like. Uh, it's tiny. This is a, it's a county that covers a lot of miles, but they don't have a lot of population. So uh, their courthouse isn't very big because they don't need it to be, you know, tell people start murdering each other. All right. Well, it kind of looked like that started to change. Maybe not. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I know. It, it's a bummer, though. It is. Uh, this was, I was hoping this would be, you know, interesting this morning to see them in the same room, but uh, it was not to be. Okay. At least they're going to start panning a little bit. Oh, well, well, well. Look who just got to court. What is this? Ooh, the high ponytail. Hmm. Well, that's a new and uh childish look okay <laughs> that's fine so the attorney to her right is mr archibald the attorney to her left is the attorney that joined her case uh not too long ago he's another death penalty certified attorney i don't actually know his name i'll have to look it up yeah the hair stella i don't know man <laughs> Okay, I'm guessing they're still waiting for the judge to join us. Uh, gosh. <laughs> I, Me too. Me too. Five-year-old's hairdo. I know. I, I really don't like being petty, to be honest. I don't uh, think it's fair to go after other women's looks. But um, I don't know in Lori's case. Do we make an exception? Uh, or maybe, not, maybe we don't. But <laughs> uh, yeah, the hair. Gosh. <laughs> Whoever did that hair for her was a mom. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Covering the gray roots. Oh, yeah, maybe so, huh, Fran? Yeah, maybe so. Oh. <laughs> Amanda said, usually I don't like to pick on other people but if anyone deserves it it's lori and and i should explain for you guys that are listening and not watching uh after the fact it was you know just the sides and very top of her hair pulled up in a small ponytail at the top of her head you know that then cascades down the back but uh it does look like something you'd put in a little girl's hair not a not a grown adult but it's whatever. She does look chipper this morning. She had a big smile on her face. Once upon a time, Lori loved coming to court. Remember in the beginning? She was all about this attention. I'll never forget that first day in court after she was extradited back to Rexburg from Hawaii. The way she would walk through 
the way she walked through the courtroom giving the look to JJ's grandparents. Do you guys remember that? It was the most arrogant, mean, petty thing. And at the time, we didn't know where the kids were, right? And so people were like, huh, she's, uh, that was a scathing look. And now I look back and think, wow, the kids were dead. She killed them, uh, presumably. And the way she looked at them, I'll never forget that. And, and looking back on it now going, this was exactly what it looked like. It always was. And she threw them that look. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Fran. She was walking the runway. All the attention was on her. Yeah, totally. Yes. Oh, yes. Victoria says that's the Pebbles hairdo. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Petty AF. Well, maybe, but. You're right. If anyone deserves it, maybe it's Lori. <laughs> oh, gosh, that cracks me up. Oh, it looks like we could have streamed this from Judge Boyce's page and not uh, East Idaho News. It doesn't really matter, though. It's fine. It's public stuff. We'll take it. Oh, here we go. So I don't know why we don't have sound. Okay, no one has sound. All right, this isn't my fault. Okay, good. Good morning. We're going on the record in this matter. This is case CR 2221 okay. State versus Lori Noreen Vallow. This is the time scheduled for a hearing on motions that are pending filed by the defense. Uh, as we get started, a couple of procedural issues the court would like to take up. First of all, for the public in attendance, uh, we do have an administrative order governing conduct both in the courthouse and within the courtroom. I would reiterate the prohibitions that are contained in the order governing courtroom conduct uh, on page two of that order that cell phones, and I'll just read that to make sure everyone's clear on this, that's in attendance. With the exception of approved media and court personnel, all cell phones and other electronics must be turned off at all times in the courtroom. If a cell phone or other electronic device rings or beeps or is found to be used during court, it will be confiscated by the marshal. No one may talk on a cell phone in the courtroom. And also uh, recording or transmitting any images or sounds from this courtroom if you have not been previously authorized to do so as part of the media in orders the courts entered is likewise prohibited. So I would request the public please comply with that order at all times during this hearing. I'll identify the parties at this time then. Mr. Wood and Ms. Blake are here on behalf of the state. The defendant, uh, Ms. Ballo Daybell is here represented by her attorneys, Jim Archibald and John Thomas. Uh, in terms of these motions, to clarify for the court, uh, who's intending to argue the motion on behalf of the defendant, counsel? I have All right, Mr. Thomas will present argument on the motions, and who will be offering responsive argument from the state? I will, Your Honor. Mr. Wood will present argument for the state. Uh, the court would note that we did previously have scheduled a motion 
in regards to consumptive DNA testing that was set for today. The court has received a stipulation and an order which I've signed that resolved that issue. And so that is not being taken up for hearing this morning based on the order entered on that. Uh, what remains then for the uh, court today are two motions as they relate to the charges that are contained in the indictment, two separate motions, one as it relates to aggravating factors um, and the other motion as it relates to counts one and three with the conspiracy charges. Uh, we'll hear argument on those motions. I will indicate one other procedural matter that uh, upon completion of this hearing, the audience will be instructed by the security here in the bailiffs as to uh, when you'll be leaving the courtroom for security purposes. So please remain seated until you're instructed to uh, leave the courtroom upon the conclusion of this hearing. So going forward to the motions now, let me first just ask Mr. Thomas, is the defense ready to proceed with your motions? Yes, ma'am. All right. And is the state ready to proceed this morning, Mr. Wood? Yes, Your Honor. Very well. First motion I'd like to take up then is the motion that was filed on July 12th, entitled Motion to Remand a Grand Jury for Probable Cause Determination as to Alleged Aggravating Factors. Why don't we start there, Mr. Thomas? I've reviewed your motion and briefing. I've reviewed the state's response as well. And if you'd like to present argument on that at this time, you may. Certainly, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, we would also, uh, we, we have filed a uh, motion to incorporate federal and state constitutional grounds in support of future motions and objections. That has not yet been heard. So I would just like to put that on the record that we are relying upon uh, uh, that motion and, uh, and we're relying upon the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, and 14th amendments of the United States Constitution. Um, there are about 70 cases that are cited in that motion. Um, I can read those off for the clerk or for the uh, reporter if the court is okay with that or would the court like me to well, we don't acknowledging? Have, we don't have that notice for hearing today, Mr. Thomas. I mean, I can take note that it's been filed and understand the uh, request you're making there in terms of making any specific finding or determination right. it's not set for hearing uh, the motion's been lodged in the case and i don't think it's necessary to put all the authority into the record on the oral motion at this time unless you think that's necessary so it's up to you and i don't think it's necessary i just want to make sure uh, for appeal purposes that the court is aware that we are relying upon those uh, uh, constitutional amendments Okay, and I do understand that those are incorporated into your uh, defense here and we'll be considering those federal constitutional protections as well in this case. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, so the first uh, motion that we're gonna argue today is the, uh, with regards to the uh, aggravating factors, Your Honor. We believe that, um, uh, that there should be a probable cause uh, hearing on these aggravating factors. Uh, pursuant to our motion, we indicated that uh, those aggravating factors uh, enhance, uh, if you will, the penalty, uh, and therefore they are part of, uh, of, of the punishment here. We understand the state's position, and we understand that the state's position, the, the Supreme Court of the uh, state of Idaho's position, is that Abdullah is uh, controlling law here. And we, we get that, but uh, we are of the um, opinion that, uh, that there should be uh, 
probable cause uh, hearings on each of these aggravators uh, for several reasons. One being uh, that it narrows down uh, the possibility of us uh, having to uh, prepare for a trial on a on an aggravating factor that that doesn't fit, that doesn't meet the probable cause standard. Uh, th there are other reasons that we've noted in our brief. We'd ask the court to uh, consider those. Uh, as I said earlier, we understand that Abdullah is the uh, law of the land here in Idaho, but as the court is well aware, especially uh, this year, uh, where the Supreme Court uh, ruled to overturn Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade was the law of the land for a number of years, uh, and then uh, through time and change, uh, they decided to overturn that. Uh, that was a landmark case, and uh, we would just like to, uh, for appeal purposes, put that on the record that we believe that that uh, it should be a probable cause uh, standard as far as these uh, these aggravating factors go, and we would uh, rely upon that uh, for appeal purposes. We understand that the court is likely to uh, deny uh, our motion on that, but we would like that uh, to be part of the record. And that's all. That's all we have on that. All right. I have a question then, Mr. Thomas. If under your motion, who would make a probable cause determination? Are you suggesting, because this case came about as a result of a grand jury indictment, are you suggesting it would need to go back through another grand jury indictment or go through some sort of a hearing similar to a preliminary hearing where a magistrate potentially or me would determine probable cause? You know, that would be a hybrid issue, and I don't think that that, that would be appropriate. I think that it should go back to the grand jury uh, to have them uh, to decide whether or not this should move forward. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that the Idaho uh, statutes and constitution allow for that hybrid, uh, bring it back to a grand jury or bring it back to a preliminary hearing and let some uh, a magistrate or, or your honor uh, to decide whether those are probable cause or not. I'm not sure that it would really matter, but uh, I would think that bringing it back to a grand jury would be the more appropriate way to do it since they were the ones who found uh, the probable cause on the uh, alleged crimes. I would ask that the court uh, require that they also find uh, probable cause upon the aggravating factors. All right. Thanks for the response to the question, Mr. Thomas. Mr. Wood, what is the state's response on the motion for uh, further probable cause determination on aggravating factors? <laughs> Thank you, uh, Your Honor. I'll be brief. Uh, as Mr. Thomas has pointed out, there is controlling law on this issue, uh, directly on this issue in State versus Abdullah. It's a 2015 case, capital case where the death penalty was found. Um, and I'll just, uh, this is in my brief, but I'll just read from it very quickly. This is a direct quote from that case. We also hold that there is no constitutional requirement that the state present evidence demonstrating probable cause for each aggravating circumstance to properly notify the defendant of its intent to seek the death penalty. And so, uh, as Mr. Thompson stated, that is controlling. Uh, it's the Supreme Court of the state of Idaho. That analysis starts, uh, their analysis starts with a discussion of Ring versus Arizona, which is the case that found that death penalty needs to be found by a jury. Um, and and uh, that case has been interpreted by some to, to uh, provide that there should be a probable cause finding out aggravating factors, even though the Supreme Court did not actually find that. Uh, Abdullah goes through that analysis um, and come to the conclusion that I just, the Supreme Court comes to the conclusion I just read. Uh, where the Supreme Court has found that, where it's uh, directly on point, uh, I think this decision is already made for the court. I understand Mr. Thomas's argument that it's for appeal purposes, and we, we understand that. 
Um, but as for this case and under the current law, uh, this is an issue that's already decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, there's no need for probable cause to be found of the aggravating factors. Um, Idaho law determines how uh, those aggravating factors are listed and how that notice of intent is given. Uh, and that has been upheld in Abdullah. And so uh, for today, uh, I, I think Mr. Thomas said it well, for purposes of appeal, they've, they've raised the issue. But as of, uh, for this case today, I think this decision's already been made by the Supreme Court. All right, thank you for the response, Mr. Wood. Mr. Thomas, do you have any rebuttal argument to make? No, Your Honor. All right, the court's considered the motion then at this time, uh, given the nature of the case in lieu of making a finding or ruling from the bench, the court will take this matter under advisement and will issue a written decision on the motion. That will be lodged once we've completed the research and written the decision on that. So that uh, first motion will be taken under advisement. Mr. Thomas, then if you'd like to present argument on the second motion, and that was your motion filed also January, I'm sorry, July 12th uh, to remand the indictment to the grand jury for further proceedings uh, and in particular stating your objections to the listing of the offenses in counts one and three of the indictment. If you'd like to present your argument on that motion at this time, you may. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, our, our main argument uh, revolves around, around counts one and three. Uh, that they're uh, confusing to the jury. Uh, they would be confusing to a jury uh, when they have to find this uh, after after the trial uh, to find this uh, the, these these elements. And the, the I see that the state is uh, saying that the crimes of uh, murder and the crime of of grand theft are not necessarily the crimes in the conspiracy. Uh, however, this doesn't make any sense uh, because the conspiracy to commit murder and the conspiracy to commit grand theft are two separate conspiracies. Uh, and I'll go through that uh, in, in just a bit. But we do believe that, that it would be confusing to a jury uh, to be able to uh, figure out what elements were met and when the elements were met and to what extent the elements were met. Uh, the burden is high. The burden is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. If they meet some of the burden uh, at, a, at a different standard, uh, perhaps a probable cause standard or perhaps a, a more likely than not or a, uh, or a different standard, uh, that, would be, that would be severely detrimental to our client. So I think one of the um, things that we need to think about in, in reviewing whether or not these, uh, these charges, conspiracy to commit murder and, and grand theft, in counts one and counts three should be split off or bifurcated. Uh, I think we need to say, when when does the conspiracy end? Well, one would think that the conspiracy to commit murder would end when the alleged murder occurs. That would be the end of the conspiracy. Um, the state has pled in count two uh, of the indictment that the murder of Tyler Ryan occurred on or between September 8th and September 9th. So that would be the end of that conspiracy. Um, the conspiracy to commit the crime uh, would have been completed and the conspiracy to the murder would have been over. Uh, one would think that the conspiracy to commit grand theft ended when the grand theft was over. Uh, and the pleadings in count seven uh, of the indictment 
indicate that the grand theft would have occurred after the murder. The murder of Tyler Ryan was pled to have, to have allegedly occurred uh, no later than September 9th. And the murder of J.J. Vallow uh, in count three, that murder would have uh, was alleged to have been committed uh, on, on or before uh, September 23rd. And so the grand theft uh, was alleged to have occurred pursuant to their indictment between October 1st and January 22nd. So the conspiracy, while we can have a, a before portion of the conspiracy, October 1, 2019, and January 22nd, 2020. Oh, thank you. And so they're saying that uh, the conspiracy, uh, while it could have possibly uh, developed earlier, uh, it could not possibly have ended in the same time that the conspiracy to commit murder would have ended. So the conspiracy to commit murder would have ended at the very least, at the very most, on September 23rd. The conspiracy to uh, commit the grand theft, the grand thefts were committed between October 1st, allegedly, and, and January 22nd uh, of the following year. And so those don't line up. Well, so, Mr. Mr. Thomas, can't you have an ongoing conspiracy of different offenses? I mean, a classic conspiracies like a drug conspiracy where somebody's doing a delivery of a controlled substance and then a week later another delivery and a week later another delivery and that's all part of a grand conspiracy charge that would have multiple offenses isn't the time frame open through all of these charged offenses sort of but not not after the conspiracy to commit murder once the conspiracy to, once the murder is committed there is no conspiracy to commit the murder there's maybe a cover up or or a, a conspiracy to uh uh i don't know after the fact some sort of a uh, some sort of other other charge, but once the conspiracy to commit murder, once the murder is over, the conspiracy is over, right? I don't I don't see how that could go go anywhere further. And so with the with the uh, the conspiracy to commit murder over, I think that's where that charge ends. The conspiracy to commit murder ends at the end of the murder. And so I don't think that they can tag on a conspiracy to commit grand theft. As part of the conspiracy to commit murder, and and in fact, the state uh, says that in their brief, they say that Idaho Code 18-1701 gives the punishment for conspiracy as punishable upon the conviction in the same manner and in the same extent as provided under the laws of the state of Idaho for the punishment of the crime or offense to which the combined had committed. And in in layman's terms, I think if I'm reading it correctly, and I may not be, but it says in layman's terms, this is what I feel, that uh, if they find a conspiracy to commit murder, then the punishment is death. And that is the conspiracy to commit. That's the conspiracy. If the conspiracy to commit grand theft, the punishment would be up to 14 years in prison. Um, and so it sounds like there are two possible punishments to this one conspiracy, uh, either death or life in prison, or 14 years in prison. And so to me, it sounds like there are two conspiracies. I understand the state's, uh, uh, the state's position where they say the conspiracy is the crime, not the murder and not the grand theft. But when you, when you make a statement like that, you have to back it up with the facts that say, well, yeah, once they've committed the conspiracy, we have to now go to the punishment. 
and their punishment doesn't meet the crime. The conspiracy punishment is one of two or three different punishments, either death, life in prison, or, or, or 14 years. So it could be possible for this jury to find some elements of the grand theft, some elements of the, uh, of the murder, and say, eh, maybe they met all, maybe they met all, the, all of the elements. We're not asking the court to, uh, you, you know, I, I, I did uh, ask the court to strike the pleadings, uh, but that was mostly in, in alternatives. Our, our main issue is we don't want to have to do this again. We don't want to have to come back, back before the court after the trial's over and it goes up on appeal and the appeal court says we couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on with this conspiracy uh, charge. And so we think that it's just easier for the court to say, you know what, bring it back to the grand jury, have them split it off, have them do one conspiracy to commit murder, one conspiracy to commit grand theft. It's just that easy. And therefore, it doesn't, it, it brings the jury into a position of we plead, we, we find them either guilty or not guilty, not, well, guilty of the grand theft, but not of the murder. And it just, it just makes it so that there's too many questions for the jury. Um, not, I'm not saying that the jury isn't sophisticated enough to, to sort through that, but I've been practicing law for 20 years, and this particular uh, charge baffled me, and I, I had to work through it, and, and I still am having issues working through it. And this is what I do for a living, so it, it just makes it uh, all the more difficult. Um, so uh, th another point, Your Honor, is that this is just fundamentally unfair. Um, the state argues in, in line five of their jury instructions uh, says further the explicit language by establishing that the state needs to prove that the defendant intended that at least one of the crimes would be committed. They emphasize the words at least one of the crimes. So in, in my mind, that infers that the defendant need not complete, need not even contemplate the commission of the murder, only the grand theft or vice versa, only the grand theft and not the murder. And so, so I, I have issue with the state saying, hey, we can lump all of these things into one conspiracy charge. And as long as they find one of those, one of those conspiracies, then the conspiracy is met. And so if, if we're doing that, then you're, you're asking the jury to find not only was it murder or was it grand theft or was it something else that the state is going to come up with between, between now and the trial. Uh, and, and how do we punish that? And so now we have to go back to the jury and say, okay, so which conspiracy did you find? Well, we found that there was conspiracy to commit grand theft, but not conspiracy to commit murder. Or we found that there was conspiracy to commit murder, but not conspiracy to commit grand theft. And so now we're looking at, it just jumbles it up. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to do it that way. And we're bringing it before the court because we believe that we're just looking for a fair trial. We just want the jury to be able to go back to the jury room and say, yes, this is the conspiracy. The conspiracy is to commit murder. Or yes, this is the conspiracy. The conspiracy is to commit grand theft. That's all we want. That's all we're looking for is a yes or no uh, answer that the jury would, would need to come back with. Further analysis would just be, I don't know. I don't know that it's appropriate and I don't think it's fair for the jury to have to do that. Um, the state further takes uh, takes issue with my 8A uh, argument. Uh, they indicate that two or more offenses 
may be charged. I say that the two more offenses may be charged on the same indictment. However, uh, criminal rule 8A indicates that those charges need to be separate counts. Um, and so the state's uh, attorney says that, that there's one conspiracy uh, for two, two different crimes, and, and I'm not analyzing that, and there's no analysis to that. Well, my analysis is, Judge, the state's wrong. The state needs to realize that, yeah, this needs to go back to the grand jury, and it needs to be conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit uh, grand theft. Um, the state goes on to make an untimely argument um, that we are untimely in our arguments. Uh, we would ask the court to, um, to rule on the merits of the case and not on the untimeliness. Um, the state has, in my opinion, the state has waived their right uh, to make this untimely argument. Um, we got their response to this, uh, to this motion just six days ago, which is, in my opinion, untimely. I think a seven-day notice is pretty standard around the state. Um, also, the state, um, you know, the court is aware of how much discovery is involved in this, uh, sorting through that. And, uh, and perhaps uh, I, I wouldn't even say that normal cases would we would be able to find this uh, within the 28 day time frame that the legislature has led it as as are that the rules have, have established. Uh, but this particular case, this case is is far in excess of. Uh, the time frames and the uh, and and the process and the time needed to 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 just digest this case and the discovery, and the state uh, when I filed my discovery uh, motion, uh, I'm sorry, my discovery request on uh, April the 18th, uh, the state failed to respond in a timely manner. They responded timely, I guess I I should say that on May the second, which would have been the 14 days, but they responded by telling me. Oh, by the way, we'll get you your discovery within 14 days of May 2nd. So they were untimely on that. And yet they're telling me that that I need to, uh, uh, you know, I, I was untimely on filing this motion and that I should have come to the court for re relief and request. Uh, I would also note that the docket indicates that uh, the court uh, didn't release the testimony of the grand jury uh, until June 21st, 2022, which is far beyond the time frame for us to file a 12, uh, 12B motion, which I think is excusable error uh, based on the fact that we didn't have the information that we needed to dig into the indictment and dig into uh, the things that we needed to do. Your Honor, in closing, I would just uh, say to the court, and I know that the court is well aware of this, that a person's life is on the line. Uh, you know, the prosecutor for the state of Idaho uh, represents the interests of everybody in the state, and that includes the defendant. They are duty bound to look out for the procedural interests of the defendant and what they're arguing, in my opinion, Your Honor, is wrong. Uh, the state's attorneys here uh, are here to seek justice, not just a win. And uh, they're here to protect the Constitution and the rights of all those in the state of Idaho, including those that they're prosecuting. And so I believe that the appropriate, uh, the appropriate way to deal with this indictment is to return it to the grand jury and just have them split the two uh, conspiracy charges so that it's easier for a, for a regular jury, for a trial jury to understand and to, uh, to sort through this. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Thomas. I'll hear a response from the state. Mr. Wood, I'd like to start off with the issue raised there at the end that was raised in your uh, responses to both of these motions that they were 
failed to be filed timely under criminal rule 12b and let's start there and then uh, move forward with the substance of this motion so if you'd like to present any argument at this time or notify the court if you're still uh, holding on to your objection on the timeliness issue thank you your honor we do maintain that objection uh, that's why we put it in our briefing uh, we do understand that 12b is a rule in which the court has a large amount of discretion uh, to find good cause or reasonable neglect uh, however our the reason why we filed that is in neither of the defendant's pleadings was any good cause or reasonable neglect provided for why these were untimely i do take issue with the idea that the state was late in discovery uh, we had already provided all of the discovery to co-counsel um, and so I, I take issue with that. Um, yes, we do maintain that objection, understanding the court has wide discretion on that issue. All right, thanks for the argument on that. The court's reviewed that objection. It's made under uh, timeframes that are set forth in Rule 12, uh, in particular Rule 12D of the Idaho Criminal Rules indicates motions under Rule 12B must be filed within 28 days after the entry of a plea of not guilty or seven days before trial, whichever is earlier. Uh, these are not within that time frame. However, that Rule 12D also has an important final sentence. The court may shorten or enlarge the time and for good cause shown or for excusable neglect may relieve a party of failure to comply with this rule. I've considered that objection and looked at the Dis, uh, the objection as well as the discretion built within the rule under 12d and i do find as it relates to both these motions that good cause has been shown for the timing of the motions uh, one is the complexity of the case and volume of discovery there's been delays uh, through no fault of defense counsel with uh, their client having been uh, found incompetent for some time and then returned to competency for further proceedings. The court would note that trial is not scheduled in this matter until January, so we're still significantly before the time for trial. The court would also note that we discussed specific dates for the calendaring of these motions, along with the input from the state as to when these would be appropriate to be heard. And uh, that rule goes to the filing of the motions, not necessarily the hearings, but uh, given that determination and my discretion, I think it's important that these issues be determined on the merits and not procedurally under the rule. And so in my discretion, I am uh, finding good cause exists for a factual and legal determination on both of these motions today. And so I'll deny the objection as it relates to timeliness. Uh, finally, on that discovery issue raised, I don't take that into consideration at all because there's been no motion to compel filed or any other notice to the court that that's at issue. So with that ruling made, uh, Mr. Wood, if you would like to now present your response as to the merits of the motion on counts one and three. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, going through the defense's uh, motion, uh, it's, it seems that they that the primary concern is this, this is going to be confusing to a jury and, and unfair. Uh, I, the state just, fundamentally disagrees at the um, the defense's argument rests on what appears to be a false premise that a conspiracy to commit multiple crimes is in fact multiple crimes uh, that I've outlined this in my brief so I don't want to go over it uh, word for word but I just note that uh, multiple cases have held and this is just 
a few of them, that the conspiracy is the crime. It's one crime, however diverse its objects. And that's very important language. You can have, you could have a conspiracy to commit uh, completely, completely different crimes. Uh, the state believes that in this case, there are three conspiracies. There are three agreements that the conspiracy, the crime of the conspiracy is the agreement and an overt act uh, to further that agreement, whether that overt act is otherwise illegal or not. It doesn't have to be. Um, and so the, the state believes there are three ag criminal agreements. One was to murder Tylee Ryan and to steal the social security money that was uh, allotted to her. One was to kill JJ Vallow and to steal and continue to collect the social security funds that were allotted to him. And those are the two counts that are at issue today. Uh, we, we do believe they are linked. Um, and so they, uh, they aren't completely separate. Uh, they, they are linked together. And we believe that the jury will find that there was this agreement uh, that uh, they agreed to commit those two crimes. Um, when we talk about the elements. Let me ask you a question on that, Mr. Wood. Are, are you saying it's a single conspiracy that envelops counts one and three? Or no. is count one a conspiracy and count three is a separate conspiracy? Yes. And I, I know I there's a third conspiracy charge in the indictment under count five. Right. I, I want to be very clear. We believe there are three separate conspiracies. Okay. And so one, it, looking through the defendant's pleadings and listening to argument today, they speak a lot about the elements. Well, the elements for the conspiracy, we don't have to prove the elements of the underlying crimes for a conspiracy. Um, I've listed the, the jury instructions in, the, in, in our briefing and, and the substantive showing that the state needs to make and the jury needs to find beyond a reasonable doubt is that they agreed to commit a crime or crimes, and the jury instructions have this written right in. They have the S for crimes, a crime or crimes. Um, and that the defendant intended that at least one of those crimes would be committed and that one of the parties to the agreement performed at least one of the overt acts that are listed in the indictment. Those are the elements of the conspiracy, not whether or not the murder was completed. You don't even have to complete a crime for the conspiracy. Um, to, to be found. And so I ask on another question on that, Mr. Wood, when you're instructing a jury, do they not have to be told what the underlying elements of a crime are? In other words, uh, the common lay person may well not know the difference between grand theft, burglary and robbery. So if you just throw in, for example, grand theft and say, was there a conspiracy to commit grand theft? Um, does the jury have to be told, well, here's what a grand theft is under Idaho law and lay out each of the elements so you make sure that they know what the underlying crime is that was part of the conspiracy? I believe so, but even if that's the case, they don't have to find the elements of the underlying crime. Um, for instance, if person A and person B agree to kill person C, they, they've made the agreement, that's the first part, and one of them purchases a gun and they drive there and then they get stopped before by the police. They've still completed the crime of conspiracy uh, because the, cons the crime is the agreement and then taking an overt act in furtherance of it. It's not the completion. 
it's not um, uh, it's not the completion of the crime. It's the crime is the agreement, and the case law on that is clear. Um, and so, even if the jury is entitled to see those elements, which they will in this case because they've been charged with those separate crimes as well, um, they don't have to find those elements. They don't have to find a single element of those crimes to find the crime of conspiracy. There, I, I found no case law to suggest that, that that that's the case. And I don't believe there is any case law to suggest that because the crime is the agreement and the overt act. Um, in terms of Mr. Thomas raised the issue of when does it end? Well, the and the court pointed out there can be ongoing conspiracies. And we do believe that the evidence here is going to show that it ended when Social Security stopped paying out the money that was being stolen. Um, and we believe, uh, and so it doesn't, the conspiracy doesn't necessarily end when one of the crimes is completed. If there's multiple crimes, it ends when the whole conspiracy ends. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that's confusing. I don't think a jury is going to find that confusing. Um, and so I, again, Your Honor, I go back to this, to the point that um, uh, the law isn't unfair because it's bad for the defendant. That doesn't mean it's unfair. The law is not unfair uh, because it's not in the defendant's favor. Uh, no crime is in the defendant's favor. And so, uh, I, so I, I take issue with that agreement that this is fundamentally unfair. I don't believe this is fundamentally unfair. I think these are charges based on the evidence provided to the grand jury. Uh, they didn't have a problem with it. They found it. And so if they can find it, I think uh, we can put it in front of the, 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 the pettit jury, the, the trial jury. Um, Mr. Wood, I do, I do have a few more questions on that. And I'll sure. just let you know, I've before the motion was filed, I've looked at these two counts a lot of times because I, I do, I have not determined whether or not they're correct or incorrect, but I will say I haven't seen charges that uh, had multiple crimes that were unrelated like that in a single count and thinking in terms of going forward my concerns have have been two number one uh, how do you instruct a jury with a jury instruction um, and maybe we'd start there do you believe a jury instruction would require a definition of all elements of both offenses if you're going to tell a jury they conspired to commit these two crimes. The way the indictment is written, it's in the conjunctive using the word and, conspiracy to commit first degree murder and grand theft. So that tells me the jury's got to find both of them, not one or the other is the way it's written. And so do you think within a jury instruction, you've got to say, and here's what a first degree murder is, and here's what a grand theft is, and is that all part of now we're getting to a very, I can see a very large and cumbersome jury verdict form or uh, instruction on how do you find count one? I have seen no case law or authority that says we have to provide the elements of the underlying crime to the jury. If it's out there, then, then it's out there. But I've seen in my research on this issue, I've never seen any authority that states we have to do that. And I think the rationale behind that is those underlying crimes are not the crime. They're already, 
being charged with the murder and the grand theft separately. At least Mrs. Daybell is charged with the grand theft separately. Uh, and so the jury will have those elements already anyway in this case. So if that is a concern for the court, I think it's already taken care of because the jury is going to see the elements of those crimes when they have to decide on the murder charges and the grand theft charges. Um, I actually think that we are confusing the issue if you start giving the elements of the underlying crimes in a conspiracy instruction because the conspiracy is the crime. The agreement is the crime. Uh, we've been given the jury instructions uh, from the Supreme Court and nothing in there says anything about the uh, listing out the elements of the underlying crimes. Okay, and I appreciate your response. And the next issue I had is back to what Mr. Thomas brought up also under the uh, statute that sets out the punishment for conspiracy. Uh, it's whatever the punishment is, as it states, for the crime or offenses they combine to commit. So if there were a guilty verdict returned on count one and or count three, uh, what do you believe is the statutory uh, required maximum penalties for that offense where you've got one offense that's only a 14-year maximum, one is up to life in prison or death? Uh, do you pick the higher one? Do you pick the lower one? Does it matter? Do you pick both? Could they run consecutive? Um, those are questions I have also with these two separate different offenses and going to uh, what what would a punishment be then if you got there? You know, I, I think, I don't think it's that confusing. I think they're punishable by the underlying sentences. So uh, they, they can receive the death penalty for conspiracy to commit murder. And I, I think that's well established. And I think in this specific case, if the jury is to find them guilty here, uh, the ultimate punishment for that is, is the death penalty. Um, and I think when you, you just look at it in a common sense approach, that lower sentence is swallowed up in the higher sentence anyway. And so I, I don't find that to be an issue. I think uh, I think the, the statute is clear. I think the statute even, I mean, it uses the, uh, it uses the plural with the word offenses as well. So I think it already contemplates that. I think whatever the higher one is, is the one that controls. Okay, I appreciate your response on that question as well. Any other questions? <laughs> That's the only questions I have at this okay. point. I would just end again, Your Honor, uh, this is not, um, we disagree that this is confusing. Um, and uh, without going into uh, the, the grand jury proceedings, the grand jury didn't have a problem with it. I don't think a, a jury will, uh, a trial jury will have a problem with it. Because again, if you really break it down to what the crime is, it's not that confusing. The crime is that they agreed to murder someone and steal money linked to that person. And the crime is the agreement and an overt act. Um, and as long as we establish that, um, then the jury can make the finding either guilty or not guilty. Um, and I think when we start talking about introducing all the other elements, I don't know that there's any legal rationale or authority that provides for that. Again, I haven't found any. Uh, upon receiving, I would note that the defense hasn't given any authority for that. Um, and when I when I received their brief and did, we researched this before we ever put this in front of a grand jury, researched this issue. And then when we received their brief, 
we went back and researched again. I haven't found any authority that says that's the case, that we need to do that. Um, and so based on that, we would ask the court to deny the motion. Um, thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Wood. Mr. Thomas, would you like to present any rebuttal argument? Just a few points, Judge. I'm a little bit concerned uh, that the state is indicating that they researched this issue prior to presenting it to the grand jury. So I've never done a grand jury. Okay, I was a prosecutor for, for a few years uh, in Bingham County, but I never did a grand jury. So I'm not really familiar, and as are most attorneys, not really familiar with the process of the grand jury. But my understanding of a grand jury is that you present them with evidence, uh, they go back, they deliberate, they decide what they want to charge it with, and then they come back to the prosecutor and say, these are the charges we're willing to, to, to commit, uh, to indict this person on. What Mr. Wood is intimating, I think, is that they decided what the charges were going to be. They presented the document to the grand jury and asked the grand jury to just sign off on it. And so I'm not sure that that's appropriate. I'm not sure that that's the way it should be. And I don't know. And I probably will never know because uh, the grand jury deliberations are secret and I'm not privy to those uh, to those deliberations. Uh, but that's one thing that I, I kind of raised concerns with me uh, is that perhaps this grand jury was led down a path that they weren't prepared to sign off on. If I'm confused, if the court is confused with counts one and counts three, I, I, I don't know what the grand jury would think. I'm assuming that they too may be, at least one or two of them may have been confused. The second thing I have <clears throat> is that, you know, the state is relying upon uh, this Fowork versus United States, a 1919 case, where it indicates, and they, they quote it, the conspiracy is the crime, and that is one, however diverse its objects. Um, when you read the actual opinion, um, it's a very short six-page opinion, uh, well-written, but you can tell that it's very political. It's a very political opinion regarding the war uh, that, was, that we were about to go into, and, and there were issues there. And so I think that the language that they took out of there um, perhaps not taken out of context, but we need to look at it in, in, in what the surrounding circumstances were at the time. I mean, we were about to go to war. The person that, uh, that they were uh, filing this charge against uh, was the person that uh, owned a newspaper in, in uh, Missouri, and he was writing things that were, uh, that, that were bad for the war effort. And the Supreme Court of the United States, I think, latched onto that. And so I think we should take that case and that uh, particular uh, citation that they're heavily relying upon with a grain of salt, or at least I would ask the court to review that case. And I'm sure it will. I'm sure it had that all in mind, and maybe it has already. But I would just, uh, uh, I, I lay concern upon that, upon the state relying upon that particular case and upon that particular um, uh, statement in that case uh, where they're relying so heavily upon that. Other than that, Your Honor, I have no no objections or no, I have nothing further. Okay, thank you for the argument, Mr. Thomas. So, uh, in this particular motion, then the court will also take that matter under advisement, do some additional research, and review your briefings and consider the arguments presented here today. The court will issue a written decision on the second motion as well. So, I believe that concludes the proceedings for this morning. Uh, Mr. Thomas, Mr. Archibald, is there anything further from the defense today? We have a 
matter to take up with the court under seal. We don't have anything more in public. Okay, we'll take that up after. And Mr. Wood, anything further today from the state? No, thank you. All right, if everyone will give me just a brief moment, I want to consult with the bailiff and then we'll conclude the hearing. All right, at this time, if everyone can remain seated, we're going to have uh, the defendant taken from the courtroom along with uh, counsel can go with her if you'd like, and then we'll conclude the hearing. So once that's complete, I'll advise the audience when you're allowed to get up and leave. Uh, so we can go ahead and go off the record at this point. And I appreciate everyone's uh, consideration of the court rules today and the way you've conducted yourself when this hearing's concluded. Well, there you have it. So, <laughs> well, I think we've learned a few things. Uh, wow. I had a thought, and this is so petty, but I kind of wish I had done it. <laughs> I thought about it too late. I thought about running and uh, doing my hair just like that <laughs> to come back on camera. I know. What a jerk. Anyway, <laughs> I am speechless. Uh, wow. Who knew Thomas was going to be such a petty little bee, huh? Wow. Well, okay. I mean, we've all been missing a little bit of our Mark Means fix, so, or have we? I don't know if we have, but there you go. Interesting. So what do you think? Do you think the judge will rule in their favor? I think it is pointless. Uh, I kind of think he will, though, to be honest. I, I feel like he will probably, uh, he'll probably go ahead and, uh, and grant that just to, uh, be sure because, you know, they're throwing around the A word appeal. So I kind of am guessing that the judge will do that. It's not that big of a deal. Honestly, I'm not really sure why the, uh, defense was arguing so hard against it. Or maybe that wasn't so hard really, but. Anyway, petty stuff. Interesting. I didn't see a wedding ring, Fran. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and look. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Janet. I think he will. Yeah. But, I mean, really, like, it's completely inconsequential. So, whatever. But... That was interesting. So, well, I really do believe that I, I don't know, just watching all of this, you have to think that that wasn't something that Archibald would have filed or argued. I, that feels like that was Thomas's hill to die on. Um, Archibald looked completely bored and sometimes a bit uh, appalled, mostly just detached. Yeah. So, 
And Lori, what in the hell with all the facial expressions? We haven't seen that before. I have to agree with you, Amanda, that uh, that looked crazy. And I hope that doesn't mean that we are on the way back to the mental hospital with her because that was pretty unhinged. Particularly around times when they mentioned her little boy by name and she would slap on that smirk, the giggle, the eye roll. Holy cow. Wow. Definitely sickening. That was something. I just don't know what to say. That was pretty, uh, well, it was more than I thought it would be this morning, to be honest. Longer, for sure, but also the facial expressions are tough to get past. If you guys are watching this after the fact and you didn't, uh, or listening to this after the fact and you haven't watched it, you're going to want to go back and uh, take a look. Yep. Um, I can find out if she's allowed. I don't think they're allowed to have jewelry. Or maybe they can have like a silicone band or something. I don't know. Or, or it could just be some homemade thing that she come, came up with at the jail as well. Yeah. Interesting. That's true, Stella. She was kind of like that in the initial court appearance in Idaho. She was definitely full of smirks then and sucking up the attention. She looked around the courtroom a few times. I wondered if she was looking for Kay and Larry. I don't think they were there. I didn't see them. And usually if they are there, East Idaho News will always pan on them a few times, and they didn't. So I'm thinking they weren't there. Oh, maybe it was black tape. I don't know. We'll have to uh, zoom in on that and take some pictures and decide what we think it is. Interesting. We'll come back and talk about it uh, tomorrow night on case updates. Yeah. Yeah, that was something. Alrighty. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, but thanks you guys for joining me. That was pretty interesting stuff. And of course, we'll, we're here for it. So I would expect we see a ruling from the judge in the next few days on that. Again, I suspect he's going to give it to them. Um, it's no big win. It's just petty stuff, but whatever. You know, it's a uh, it, it did crack me up that Mr. Thomas said, we don't want to be back here again, you know, as if you know, promising an appeal once they are uh, convicted. It, that indicated to me that he uh, assumes a conviction is an I, to be honest. No, Chad's not in court today. Just Lori. Yep. The other thing about t today, the other thing that he, uh, the whining about the grand jury stuff. Your Honor, I was a prosecutor. But I never did a grand jury. I don't really know anything about grand juries. But I don't like what he just said about grand juries. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, I also like that the judge just pretty well completely ignored that. Because that was really just whining. Yeah. Interesting, though. I think that we're seeing a pattern here with how much... Uh, Defense attorneys do not like grand juries. It pisses them off because it's secret. They don't get to know anything about it until it's over. So they uh, they miss a lot of, you know, the innuendo. Just there's a lot they don't get to know. And obviously they don't like that very much. Interesting. True, Cammy. If you don't know, go find out and study. I, uh, yeah, that one kind of got me. Interesting. Yep. 
Yeah, whiny baby pissy pants part two. Yeah. Yes. They are so mad, aren't they, that he went to the grand jury with it? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, thinking about uh, the initial pretrial uh, or arraignment, was it, for Chad. And the belligerent turd circus it was. Is there any surprise that he went to the grand jury for the next round? I don't think so. Not at all. But yeah, they are they are hurt about that. <laughs> I can understand it to some degree. You know, there's a lot they don't get to be a part of. And uh, I've heard other uh, attorney, well, means particularly, and, and prior, mention that too, that this is done in secret, Judge, and I don't even get to know. Yeah, that's what a grand jury is. You know, other states use grand juries a lot. Idaho doesn't seem to do it as much. But uh, maybe that's becoming more common. Who knows? Anyway, I'm going to call it. I'm going to wrap it up here. So obviously we will be back with a new episode Wednesday morning. We'll be back with case updates Wednesday evening. And also it is uh, the week for the cold read party. So that'll happen right after that, uh, right after case updates tomorrow night. So there we go. All righty, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for joining me this morning. Have a great day. This has been yet another production of the True Crime Squad.